Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Henri Gazit, CEO and founder of Baserto, an authorization as a service platform that's raised over $5 million in funding. Henri, thanks for chatting with me today. Great to be here, Rhett. So before we begin talking about what you're building, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a little bit more about your background? Sure. I guess I'm a little bit of an elder statesman these days. I started my career back in the early 90s building. I was, I guess, a founding engineer of a startup called Neon Systems back in Houston. Uh, We built middleware that connected the emerging world of Windows and client server applications with enterprise data sources. And that was, uh, we went public in 99. So I call that my rose color tour through startup done. And I've been kind of going back between large companies and small companies uh, ever since joined Microsoft. In 98, and I uh, was lucky enough to be part of .NET and Azure. I helped uh, start both of those projects. Was the general manager for the Azure um, Application Server division, and helped uh, start what became Azure Active Directory. While Microsoft left Microsoft about 10 years ago, I was really frustrated we didn't get open source, and so I really wanted to sink my teeth into that, and so helped build things like OpenStack and Cloud Foundry and uh, Docker and Kubernetes while I was at HP. Uh, running the cloud division over there. And then most recently was the chief product officer of Puppet. And two years ago now, uh, a little over two years ago, decided to start my third startup, Asserto, to focus on authorization. Wow, very cool. So a few follow-up questions then from that. So you spent, what was it, 13 years at Microsoft? That's a, a long time to be there. If you had to choose you know, one big takeaway that you walked away with, what would that be? Microsoft is a very, very well-run company. I've you know, worked at a few companies during my you know, 30 plus years of my career, and it's a very well-run company. One of the things that you get to do is influence the lives of a lot of people. One of the things that you also start realizing is nothing you do matters. <laughs> like, you could basically take a bunch of most of the engineers out of Microsoft and like, you know, the company would still run the way it does. It would take years for the company to kind of feel that. And that's one of the reasons why it's frustrating to work at a big company. It's because connecting the work that you do to the progress that the company's making is just nearly impossible to do. You kind of feel like a cog in a machine. Yeah, and that's what I hear from a lot of the founders who've been on the podcast. They share a very similar experience. You know, when they're one of 100,000 employees, it's hard to really find you know, meaningful work when you're yeah, really just you know, one of a very, very large number of people. Yeah, and I would say, you know, just to add to that, even like I had to deal with myself, I would stay at Microsoft like, as long as I felt like I was learning and growing. And I did for a while, but eight, 10 years in, you start realizing what is actually making you valuable to the company is the fact that you know how to do business within the company. You know who it is that you need to talk to, you know, like you're growing your career, you're growing in terms of your scope and your title and and all that stuff. But there's a little bit more that you want. And I think those are the types of people that need big companies and start small startups. Now, how would you compare your time at 
HP compared to Microsoft. Obviously, those are both very big companies, but I'm guessing they're also quite a bit different as well. So what would be some of those big differences that you saw? Yeah, I would say Microsoft that I joined was still led by Bill. And, you know, Bill's a very impressive guy. He was visionary enough to create what I would call the software category, you know, back before there was such a thing. He definitely did it, you know, before VC became an industry and he had a profitable company pretty much from day one, which you don't really see today. So I'd say like the company was very much still at the top of its game, even like not quite when I left, but definitely when I joined. When I left, it felt like it could lost its way a little bit. You know, it was an enormous company that was used to being a dominating power in pretty much everything that it did. But, you know, there were definitely a few things that we missed, uh, like mobile clearly missed. Cloud, we were kind of about to miss, although we started Azure and, and, you know, that ended up being successful. And so HP, I would say, was in a completely different mode. When I first joined, I got a chance to also work with Meg. And she was not confused at all. The company was in a turnaround and she wanted people who were not afraid to roll up their sleeves and help with the turnaround. And the company honestly was at that point much weakened compared to how it was in the, you know, in its heyday in the seventies and eighties and even the nineties where it was a real force. It was an engineer's company. And I would say in the two thousands and two thousand tens, it really stopped being an engineer's company. And so that was an enormous difference because, you know, the company at Microsoft that I knew and loved was very focused on product and engineering. The company that I joined with HP was, you know, engineering had definitely taken a backseat, which was almost stunning considering the fact that HP was the original garage, right? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something there that I have to ask further about. So Microsoft creating the software category from your perspective, when you were sitting there in 1998, were you very well aware that that was the company's mission? And you know, was that talked about internally that you guys were creating a category and you know, trying to create a category in those early days? Do you remember? Well, I think Microsoft started with the premise of creating that category in 1975. And by 85, it was really clear that you know that was working, that Microsoft was growing quickly as a company and did not need to create hardware. You know, the prevailing wisdom at the time in 1975 uh, to 1985 really was that you needed to build the hardware and software together. And Microsoft clearly proved with DOS and, you know, some of its early applications by, you know, 19, I think it was 87 when Microsoft went public. It was a rocket. And so when I joined in 98, that rocket was already like kind of in stage two or stage three. And at that time, it was clear that our mission had gone beyond a computer on every desk and in every home. And we were trying to become the dominant force in server software and, you know, like starting to break into the enterprise and things like that. So I think that it had essentially reinvented itself. In 95 or 96, I think Gates realized that the internet was a thing and that Microsoft was slow to it and mobilized the entire company to basically rebuild the company as an internet company. And that was, I would say, heroic for its time. And the company tried to do the same thing in the 2000s and didn't, you know, really stumbled. And then it wasn't until Satya came in and we focused the company on cloud and devices, you know, and really on Azure that it, you know, took off again. Wow. Super fascinating. Now, two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and entrepreneur. So apart from Bill Gates, uh, what CEO do you admire the most and what have you learned from them? 
Well, Gates is, I would say, probably tops on my list because I've had the pleasure of, you know, being able to interact with them at Microsoft and work with them a little bit. I say Jobs is up there for me as well, you know, very different person. But, you know, in particular, I would say the his Stanford commencement address, the 2005 speech that he gave, if you only had one day to live was a huge, you know, influence on me at the time. I felt like that was uh, one of the reasons why I left Microsoft was, you know, to stay hungry and stay foolish, as he said in that, in that speech. Wow. That would have made Steve Jobs happy. His speech was able to convince you to quit Microsoft. <laughs> yeah, Microsoft was like a warm bath, I realized. And, you know, it's easy to stay in. But, you know, at some point you kind of, you know, <laughs> it probably helped that I was about to turn 40 back when I left around 2011. But, you know, I asked myself, do I want to die here? And the answer was clearly no. And so it was time to go do something different, jump in the deep end of the pool again. It's awesome. What about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? And, and this can be a business book or it can be a personal book that just influenced how you view the world. Well, I'll go with the theme. And, you know, I read the biography, the Walter Isaacson biography of Jobs. And, you know, I think at the time certainly helped me cement that conviction that I needed to leave. Lots of business books, you know, that I think are really good. Clay Christensen's book on disruptive innovation was, you know, kind of required reading, I would say, while it was at Microsoft and certainly afterwards, just to kind of understand the dynamics of why startups can actually beat larger companies. I think without having a framework like that, you kind of have to be insane to leave a large company to, you know, start a new company and think that you have a chance in heck of actually making it. But with kind of this notion of disruptive innovation, I think it's, you know, the dynamics of that make a lot more sense. The lean startup, Eric Ries, I would say uh, back when I left Microsoft again, that was a pretty influential book on how to kind of reduce the time from when you start to when you actually de-risk some of the biggest risks that you face. Some of those risks are maybe, can I build it? But most of those risks are about, will anybody buy it? And, you know, that I think uh, made a huge difference too. Yeah, those are some great call-outs. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now let's switch gears here and then let's talk about Asserto and dig a bit deeper. So can you just take us back and tell us about the origin story behind the company? Yeah, we can go back about 15 years when I started working on what became Azure Active Directory. I was the general manager for that, what was the Azure Access Control Service. And at the time we basically had, you know, kind of two directories in the world, you know, LDAP, which was the Linux directory and then Microsoft's Active Directory. And Active Directory had like 90 or 95% market share. And it was like the linchpin of the Windows Server franchise. But at the same time, we realized all the new apps were going to be written to SaaS apps. That was pretty clear even in 2007, 2008. And so they needed to be able to log in and they also needed to figure out what the user could do, you know, so authentication authorization, we're going to have to move to the cloud because there's no operating system ask. And so my team ended up working alongside the rest of the industry on, you know, all sorts of standards like OAuth 2 and OpenID Connect and SAML and JWT. And, you know, 10 or 15 years later, now, like no one thinks twice about authentication. 
right? It's like a solved problem. You basically have Okta, you know, if you want to do single sign-on on the web or Auth0 or many other, you know, providers of developer tools for building authentication. But the downstream process, authorization, is a problem that is far from solved. Authorization is now that you're logged in, what can you do with my tool? And that hasn't really moved forward at all. And so my co-founder and I worked together on Microsoft on, you know, that Active Directory project and in a lot of other companies like HP and Puppet. And in 2020, we kind of asked ourselves, what's still hard to do as a developer? And we immediately went back to that problem for authorization. So we felt like that was just as important and we could spend the next five, 10 years just, you know, working on that. So that's how Asserta was born. And why do you think the authorization problem has not been solved yet? Well, it's first of all, I would say it's a more domain specific problem. So, you know, while authentication, you know, there's basically only so many ways of doing it. You may have like user IDs and passwords or, you know, single sign-on or magic links or, you know, other password lists, you know, two-factor, but the protocols underneath are all mostly the same. But authorization is domain-specific. So, you know, if you have a candidate tracking system, you know, you want to be able to define a set of roles and permissions that are specific to that application. And, you know, the application has different types of objects, like a candidate tracking system may have an applicant and a role or a job. And so, you know, you want to be able to allocate permissions for particular people or groups on particular object types in the system. And so there aren't really any standards for that. And we're just at the beginning of the process where we start as an industry making off-the-shelf solutions available to that problem. So far, there haven't been any. So everybody's had to build it and reinvent the wheel. But as an industry, we're, you know, kind of a constant move towards like taking all of these, all this undifferentiated heavy lifting off of developers' hands and creating these developer services that make it easy to do it. And so authorization is one of those areas. And I was reading on your website about the principles of authorization. Could you talk us through some of those? Yeah. So we coined that phrase, you know, we have a set of patterns and principles that we've observed from a lot of people who have solved the authorization problem publicly. If you look at Google, they wrote a paper called Zanzibar. Intuit has a, a system called OutZ. Carta has one, Airbnb, Netflix. They all kind of wrote publicly about how they did things. And there are really five patterns that we think are super important. One is building authorization as a distributed system, as a separate microservice and with a distributed systems architecture, because authorization has to be done locally right next to the application. You don't want to have to call a web API that's sitting 100 milliseconds away from your application because authorization is in the critical path of every application request. So that authorizer has to run locally, but you want to manage all of the artifacts used for authorization, like users and resources and relationships and policy. You want to manage all those centrally. So you need a distributed systems architecture. That's also one of the reasons why authorization is much harder to do and why it hasn't been solved. You also want to kind of move from coarse-grained roles to fine-grained permissions. So it's not enough to say that I'm a viewer, you know, on this tenant. I may want to be a viewer on this particular folder or this particular document. I want to be able to assign the lowest level of permissions that I can and no more than that. That's what we call the principle of least privilege in the security circles. You also want to be able to extract authorization 
logic out of the application and store and version it separately as code. So if you look at the open policy agent project out of the cloud native computing foundation, that's kind of our latest best kind of way of doing that as an open source project, then we're heavy users of OPA. And you also want to be able to perform authorization in real time. So, you know, there's an anti-pattern in the world where, you know, you basically have the permissions associated with a user baked into an access token that's minted by the authentication system. And it's usually good for hours or days, but that's a terrible practice because you may have wanted to revoke those permissions, but you can't until that token expires. And so that's a very insecure, you know, method of authentication. And we're moving to a much more of a fine-grained authorization model where you make a call to an authorizer with the user context and the resource context and get an answer in real time whether this user, Brett, has the viewer permission on this document. Mm-hmm. And could you talk to us about adoption and traction and just any numbers that you can share? So I would say, you know, we don't share numbers, but we uh, have uh, many customers in production right now. And I would say there are two categories of uh, organizations that find us valuable. The first is B2B SaaS vendors that want to move from a coarse-grained authentication model like the one that I, I was talking about to a fine-grained authorization model. So basically, typically, their customers come in and say, hey, you know, you have a like an admin role, and that's no good for me because I have 100 widgets. And, you know, 50 of them are owned by this department, 25 by this department, and then I have 17 other departments that own the rest, right? And so I don't want one super admin on everything. I want an admin only on those things that are, you know, kind of like scope to that department. And so that vendor who looks at that requirement and goes, okay, well, we could go and rebuild our authorization system, or maybe we can look around and see what's available. And that's when they find us and they realize, yeah, I don't want to have to go build and rebuild this all myself. Every time I have a new requirement, I want to actually go use something that you know helps me do all the heavy lifting. The other category I would say is enterprises that want to create a common authorization control plane for a number of their internal applications. So they basically have a constant set of users and groups, and they just want to be able to assign permissions and roles to these users across a number of applications that they build in a common way. And today, every application kind of builds their own permissions, their own, you know, RBAC model. And so it's impossible for them to manage that. It's like a combinatoric problem, right? So they have N users and N applications, and they have to manage the cross product of those entitlements, which is just like maddening. It's like an enormous management burden for them. And so they want to simplify that and have a single place where they manage all those entitlements. And those are the two scenarios that the customers most commonly bring certainly for. And then does it feel like you've reached product market fit yet? Or how far away do you think you are from reaching product market fit? Or how would you just describe the uh, the general state of product market fit today? Yeah, I would say we're not quite there. We have a lot of good early indications of the problem that we were solving resonates and resonates strongly. But, you know, for product market fit, like the way I, I think it's traditionally defined, you really want like there to be strong pull from the market on your solution. And that is typically a function of how, like, of awareness and how, you know, mature your, your category is. And our categories or subcategories still quite immature, I would say. There's a growing set of vendors. You know, I would say we've gone from 
you know, zero when we first started to about 10 companies that are doing roughly what we're doing, which is, you know, a blessing and a curse. The blessing part of it is that, you know, more and more people now know that there is a solution that they can, you know, kind of bring in as opposed to have to build it all themselves. You know, and the minus is that there was a lot of noise. And so none of the vendors in this category have achieved product market fit. You know, we're all working to get there. And the irony is, you know, at some level, we want to kind of jointly create a category because that floats a lot of boats. On the other hand, you know, like software is typically a winner takes most type of endeavor. And so out of the 10 or 12 companies that exist, probably, you know, one or two or three will remain, you know, typically there's more than one, but, you know, call it, you know, like three-ish will become uh, huge companies. And what's the subcategory called or what's the category term? So I would say I am is, or identity and access management is the broad category. And I am existed forever, right? Like I would say since the eighties, but I am has kind of had a lot of disruption to it. So first the move from software to SaaS, uh, that's an obvious one. So the notion of customer identity management, so what's called SIAM, which is what Auth0 is, that's kind of a category that's only been, let's call it 10 years old, right? And I would call ours, you know, it doesn't even have a name yet, but I would call it a cloud native authorization. You know, most vendors, you know, kind of use that term cloud native authorization. And so that's a brand new nascent subcategory, so to speak. And it's going to displace a lot of the existing ways of doing authorization, which kind of are old at the tooth at this point. And what are you doing in terms of collaboration or what are you doing, if anything, I should say, in terms of collaboration with competitors to try to further that agenda around the need for this new market category and you know, getting clear on what that definition would be and trying to define what some of that criteria would be for what a platform should look like? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And I'd say probably not enough. But, you know, one question we always ask ourselves is, where does our audience, where do our users, where do the buyers hang out? And can we actually go and talk to them, you know, where they hang out? What conferences we go to, you know, what groups are they part of and things like that? So I would say we're starting to see more and more of these companies in the same conferences and talking about authorization as an unsolved problem and cloud native authorization. The thing that we're like, there's a conference that we're doing in Europe called EIC, where we actually have another authorization company that is joining us and we're going to do a panel together and we'll see if we can invite more people. Another good example is the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the same organization that's behind Kubernetes and and other cloud native projects like uh, Open Policy Agent. They are a pretty good place where some of these companies can start interacting. And so the irony here is, You want to find the right balance between commonality and standards and then differentiation. So I'm old enough to go back to the days of databases pre-SQL and pre-ODBC. This was back in the late 80s. And, you know, you had the database category, but it didn't really take off until you had a common language, SQL, ANSI, you know, like SQL 92, I think it was called, that basically standardized a lot of the language elements. And then you had this standard set of interfaces called open database connectivity that really kind of took that problem of connecting N, you know, like data applications with N like databases and transforming that into just like, you just have to like write to a single interface ODBC using one language SQL. And so 
that's a long way of saying there's huge value to standards and they end up floating a lot of boats. You don't want to kind of go in too early because, you know, kind of pre-standardizing things before you actually have some market pull is dangerous. But for this to really grow as like a category that's as big or bigger than the SSO category that Okta dominates today, and I truly believe it can be as big or bigger a category that, you know, we'll have to go create some standards and then compete within those standard frameworks. Fascinating. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm sure you've experienced a couple of challenges as you brought this product to market, but if you had to pick one that you experienced and overcame, what would that be and how'd you overcome it? Well, I would say the biggest problem is not necessarily the tech. It's always, you know, how are you going to take it to market? You know, who is the user? Who's the buyer? Who are the people that are going to have the biggest pain? You know, what types of problems they have? How do you find those people or how do you help them find you at the exact moment that they have the problem and how do you convince them that you can help them? Starting that from zero is really difficult, especially if you've never kind of worked in a zero to one type of environment. You know, working in a big company like Microsoft, there's so much awareness of what Microsoft does and new things. And there's so many channels that are already established. Oftentimes bringing something new to market involves like, how do you actually make it work within the company's existing channels to market? Whereas as a startup, you just have to build that from zero. And I would say that's just as hard, if not harder to do than actually building the product. And last question here for you. Let's zoom out three years from today. What does Assertio look like? So our vision is to basically be the enterprise control plane and you know, for authorization in the age of SaaS and cloud. And so that means transforming that n times n problem to an n plus n problem, like allowing these companies to you know have a single place where they can manage permissions and roles across all of their users and all their applications. So I don't know if that's three years or five years, probably more like the latter than the former. But, you know, in three years, I definitely want to be well on our way there where no one is confused about authorization as something that they have to go build on their own. In fact, they don't want to because that means that their application is going to be a snowflake. And, you know, between SaaS companies and buyers of SaaS, they all know that they want to converge on the standard way of, of building authorization and that we're the leading, if not one of the you know top two or three leading companies to be able to get them there. Wow, super exciting. I'd love to keep you on and ask you another 50 questions here, but unfortunately we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap. Before we do wrap up, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, our website is sordo.com. I'm Omri at sordo.com, O-M-R-I, and I'm uh, Omri G, O-M-R-I-G on Twitter. We're uh, Sordo underscore com on Twitter as well. So that's a great place to follow us. Amazing. Omri, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story and talk about what you're building. This is all super exciting and hope to have you back on in three to five years to talk about all the success you've had. Thanks so much, Brett. Much appreciated. All right, let's keep in touch. 